some snarky reporter said, you know, Mr. Hammerstein, uh, people say, which is reporter talk for I think, mm -hmm. that your music is overly sentimental. He, being erudite, said, I, I am sentimental, and people are sentimental about the things they love. So I write about sentimental and about what people love. Isn't that smart? Hello, love. Welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Julia Henning. OG Shedonist, conscious life and relationship coach, master of psychology, and spirit junkie. And I invite you to join me as I explore the big questions and even bigger feelings of what it means to be alive. Casual, right? I offer myself as permission to hang up society's mask and slip into something a little more authentic. From philosophy to psychology, inner child to inner demons, sorcery to sexuality, I tap into it all. So leave your labor at the door and make the mundane magical again. Welcome to the Permission Portal, your safe space for radical permission. Are you ready to up-level with someone who gets it? Good. Let's go. Hey guys, welcome back to the Permission Portal. I'm your host, Julia Henning. And in today's episode, I sit down with musician and philosophy enthusiast, David Barrett, as we dive deep into the philosophy of pleasure and how permission portals are crafted through the arts. I also want to report that I am indeed back in the States and just want to thank you for hanging tight as we took a little break between my ayahuasca adventures. Stay tuned for those stories to come. They are going to be big. But before we get into that and today's episode, I like to start off every episode with a little grounding first in what I call good juju. So wherever you are, I invite you to take a deep breath in through your nose and out through your mouth. Now let's do that again. But with this exhale, I want you to imagine all of your to-do lists, emails, phone calls, text messages, worries, stressors, and anxieties slipping away, letting go of them completely. Imagine them lifting off of you and smile. Trust that they're all waiting for you after this time together, but give yourself permission to tune in and to tune inward. Take one more deep breath in. <sighs> and ask yourself on a scale of one to 10, where is your mood right now? Now, I also like to draw up a little energy to really bolster the feeling of the topic or the episode. And as you guys may know now, I like to pull from various oracle decks, tarot decks, or maybe even my own deck to come. Today I'm pulling from the Starseed Oracle deck by Rebecca Campbell, and the juju is loosen your grip. We're cyclical beings, and Mother Earth teaches us to be human every day with the coming and going of the tides and seasons. If you're clinging to anything, you're resisting the natural flow of who you are. The things that we cling to are so often those we need most to let go of. Food, substances, relationships, jobs, people-pleasing. So the things that we cling to often cover up our most vulnerable space, the part that we're most afraid to leave empty, the part that we guard and don't give grace into. But by keeping that space covered with something that doesn't serve us or clinging to it for the fear of it not staying on its own accord, we prevent ourselves from receiving the things that will. Whatever we leave empty, grace will fill. And the Buddha said, you can only lose what you cling to. You're being called to find the courage to loosen your grip and give up control, to release coping mechanisms and leave space for grace to enter, to surrender all the feelings and density to the divine. 
Now, loosening your grip doesn't mean that you're clinging to or what you're clinging to will go away or it might stay, but you can be sure that what is for you will find you and you'll breathe easier knowing that you've shifted from relying on your own strength to surrendering to the grace of life. So with this poll, I always say take it or leave it if it feels like it's for you, but I think it bears the question, what are you clinging to for fear of nothing coming to take its place? We feel the juju? I also want to disclaim that I am not a licensed therapist. As a friend of psychology, I highly recommend seeking out a medical or mental health professional if you are experiencing any psychological or medical issues. I focus on uplifting consciousness both in life and relationships. Now, let's dive in. New York Times once said that David Barrett creates music to stir anybody's adrenaline. He's composed for the Olympic Games. He's written Emmy-winning scores for PBS documentaries. His television themes have been broadcast nationally on CBS, ABC, PBS, and CBC. And securing his place in history with his song, One Shining Moment, as the Wall Street Journal puts it, arguably the most famous song in sports, not to mention having performed exclusively with Art Garfunkel, David Barrett lends his days and nights to a musical compilation that will surely stand the test of time. And with a degree in philosophy, having been asked to join the Phi Beta Kappas of the world, if you don't know what that is, you, like me, were probably not invited. It's often with a therefore statement or an erudite analogy that David wistfully shares his journey through the composition we call life. But the way has been a winding road. Let's dive into it. To the world, your NCAA tournament musical superstar, David Barrett. But to me... You're Uncle Dave. Yeah, and sure. though we are not related by blood, your influence has been a pivotal example in my life of how pleasure can guide one's vocation, mm. how questioning existence validates it, and how whether it's empty or full, life is about being happy that there is a glass. So let's talk about how we know each other, and thank you for being here. Well, <laughs> thank you for having me, by the way. And uh, I'm honored to be on your podcast and, mm. uh, and bewitched at the same time, and I'll I'll try to hold up my end. <laughs> I, of course, know you through my dear, your dad, mm -hmm. my dear, 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 dear friend, mm. who we've walked down this road together, and, and of course your mom as well. And so I watched you when you were just coming to us, and now I get <laughs> to sit across the table with you and talk. That's the best. Tell me a little bit more about that. How did you and dad meet? Oh, heavens, we met in, now they call it middle school, but it was called Ooh. junior high at the time. Oh, wow, yeah. And in high school, we became a lifetime friendships. Mm. And we were in a band together called John Wesley Harding. Ooh. Fortunately, uh, there wasn't digital around to uh, that we could still hear our, our versions of songs, <laughs> but uh, we met musically and we've always been uh, no matter if we were close or far we were always close mm. so how did mom come into the picture how did you guys meet mom? i met your your mom uh, in lansing mm -hmm. and uh we became friends mm. and uh as it turns out um jeff was your dad was living in birmingham and I thought of your mom as being somebody, you should call Michelle. <laughs> and he did, and here we are. So you essentially got my I was a together. matchmaker. So I'm here them. because of you. Well, in a, a knee bone <laughs> connected to the hip bone, yes. <laughs> well, it's so funny because when I think about growing up, I have such vivid memories mm. of you just being one of my favorite adults. Oh, okay. And it's true. I mean, I was the youngest of three and I was mm -hmm. really raised in sort of a different generation than my older siblings. Mm -hmm. So I was really around the adults quite a bit on my own. Uh -huh. And I just want to say that, you know, from a really young age, you really always validated me mm. by seeing me in what stage of life I was at and sort of um, bolstering the philosophy that was coming out of my mind and out of my mm -hmm. mouth, it was never that I was belittled, and I really appreciate that. Well, of course, thanks. <laughs> uh, I, I would say my, my wife, Tracy, says I do better with children than I do adults. Mm -hmm. And I, I would say uh, 
that is absolutely the case. And so, you know, it's not just viewing, it's seeing. And I knew who you were, and I'm glad to be. Now look at y'all grown up. It's all good. Well, all grown up, but I still like to maintain a little bit of that inner child, which I oh, think is... Oh, it's there. We got to keep it's it, you know? There. It's what makes sure. things fun. Sure, absolutely. So we're going to just start off with a simple question. Oh, boy. And that is, um, what is philosophy? And what drew you to it initially? We come from the musical world, as we've spoken about. You're a musician uh, yeah. by title, but philosophy is what we're sort of here to talk about. So what is that, hmm. and what drew you to it? Well, uh, let's see here. I would say I went to college on a basketball scholarship. Mm -hmm. I love basketball. I do love basketball. So I went there to play uh, uh, for Albion College, and I tore up my ankle pretty badly, and mm -hmm. mm, the, the coach wasn't for me, and I had this brilliant idea <clears throat> that long as I was there, I would actually study. Mm -hmm which is a real breakthrough. Good like, job. if you read the books, it's amazing what you can learn. Sure. So uh, as a freshman, I took a philosophy course randomly. And, mm -hmm. and, and, and philosophy technically means love of wisdom. So I had a professor named Jack Padgett who changed my life. So mm -hmm. I dove in with the same, oh, passion that I had for the sports part of my life you don't get good at basketball unless you play and practice and practice and practice mm -hmm. and actually reading uh the great minds uh, of antiquity all the way up to the great not so many great minds these days but a few of them and uh it just was for me mm -hmm. and i i thank my in this case my i lost my father but my mom for not going what He'll never work. He'll he'll be picking up garbage by the side of the road. Uh, she always uh, uh, valued it and understood that was me, and so consequently, um, I I studied. I not out of mm, duty, but I studied because I was interested in finding out what these things are around me. I don't. Uh, in fact. Well, the song One Shining Moment grew out of reading, oh, the guy was a German linguist, uh, Casal, mm. uh, and uh, a book on myth and language. Mm -hmm. And I came across it not too long ago, and I had underlined the very passage where I had notated One Shining Moment. This is when I was 19, 20 years old. Oh, my gosh. So it influenced, there was certainly some pollination between the world of uh, the poetry of athletics, mm -hmm. which I'm, I've obviously written about, and the actual um, history of philosophy. Mm. The Greeks, of course, the, the, the Olympics grew out of that understanding, um, that it grew out of a poetic understanding of athletics. Do you have a moment... When I think back to when I was really little, I have this one memory about four or five, maybe even a little younger. Hmm. I was sitting in the back of my mom's minivan, you know, hmm. in my car seat. I'm looking out <laughs> ready the window, go. really ready to go. We're probably listening to like Raffi, if you know sure, what that sure, is, sure, right? Sure, sure, sure. And I just remember thinking, and I, it's never, it's hmm. never left me. I no. remember thinking, what am I? Hmm. What is Julia? Hmm. Who is Julia? Mm -hmm. And I remember asking, Mom. <laughs> What am I? Okay. And I remember mom kind of looking in the rearview mirror and just oh boy, befuddled. Yeah. Got a oh live God. one here. Yeah. What are we? <laughs> She's four? Okay, let's go. Uh, but I remember sure. that moment and, oh, and it came true. back to me because I had a really oh. similar journey with philosophy. Mm -hmm. I was in um, college for creative writing mm -hmm. and, you know, at the time I was an actor, but I wasn't pursuing that performance route quite yet. Mm -hmm. And I found philosophy. Mm -hmm. And when I did, felt like me it felt right it was the class I was excelling at I understood it in such a way I grokked it in yeah, such a sure. way mm -hmm. so I'm curious did you have a moment sort of in your early life where you kind of knew that this was maybe waiting for you or mm. that this was a part of you yeah I I would say for me not to get well I'll tell you what I think and feel <laughs> uh, when I was in high school 
uh, again, I was really devoted to athletics, particularly basketball. And mm -hmm. but by the time I was a senior, I I was I was a pretty good student, but not devoted student by any means. And so I was being stuck in these classes. And finally, I went to the principal and said, "You know, I need out of here. Mm -hmm. You know, I just need to go to the library. Can I do this instead of study hall?" And he was very wonderful, and he allowed me to just to go to wander around the school library for an hour. And I was drawn to uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson and mm. transcendentalism. So I wrote, I was asked to write a paper on transcendentalism. Uh, and uh, that was because of them realizing hey, this would be more beneficial than sitting like a potted plant at, uh, you know, in a study hall. I, and fell in love with New England transcendentalism, so I think that primed the pump. I, I would say having lost my father pretty young when I was 12, then, then there's a certain sort of sorting out that changes, uh, you know, the whole idea of finitude occurred to me quite early. So I think it's it's a certain Oedipal chasing after uh, a, a certain truth, mm -hmm. uh, along with a propensity to ha uh, of um, loving wisdom. Mm. Yeah, I totally understand that. And is there one or more philosophers that you find yourself referring to more often than not? And mm. if so, why do you think that is? Huh. Well, they're sort of uh, like uh, I love Jimi Hendrix and I love Eric Clapton and I love Mark Knopfler. So there's sort of a pantheon of, you know, there's not one. Uh, I was more attracted, and I am still am. Uh, I mean, I'm diving into technical philosophy. There's romantic philosophy, Cahill Gibran, and, and I think uh, Emerson isn't a technical philosopher. So there are technical philosophers like Kant or, mm -hmm. or um, Hegel and so forth. Um, I would say, given that the 20th century is essentially an existential century, that's when I think it came to full bloom. So walking through some of that, this is back to the putting on my pointy-headed hat, um, is more uh, trying to come to terms with uh, modern existentialism. And in doing so, I, th I, I think I've mentioned to you before uh, a, a, an affection for Kierkegaard um, was, a, you know, that was a wake-up call and studied him at great length. Uh, there's been a number of other ones. I mean, and, and anyone who... Um, is so inclined. You start with Socrates because he sort of, in our culture, mm -hmm. now we are a culture that grew out of the Enlightenment. Many cultures aren't. So in our culture, Western, the Western canon starts with a Socrates. Mm -hmm. um, and as Sartre said to Socrates' maxim, the unlived life is not worth living, okay, and that's Sartre, that's Socrates, and then <laughs> Sartre said, the unlived life is not worth examining. <laughs> so here we are. <laughs> that's so interesting that you bring up Sartre. When I was doing um, immersive theater hmm. a couple of years ago in our company, the Halogen Company, we had built a whole show around Sartre's philosophy, hmm. one of them being hell is other people. We created mm -hmm. the show yeah, One yeah. Exit. Yeah, yeah. And I, you know, when people would ask me why I was doing work like this, it was that if you had a platform to create something that got people to think, that got people mm -hmm. to feel, if you were in any way in the position to help move people, mm -hmm. which is what a lot of people go to the theater for, mm -hmm. that form of escapism, mm -hmm. music, mm -hmm. do you feel that there's any and I hate to say one, but is there a prime philosophy that sort of sticks out that you feel has really sort of woven through all of your work? Well, yeah, I, I, I'm of an age where I'm starting to go, how did I get into this mess? <laughs> and uh, I would say there was a 
to trying to reconcile the idea of meaning, mm. meaning. And the the modern existentialist, say Sartre or, um, well, we'll use him, uh, being in nothingness, meaning he means that uh, there's nothing intrinsic meaning in life. You create it by your decisions. Fair enough. The question I have for him is, do you mean that? And if you don't mean that, then you're not sincere. And if you do mean that, then it does have meaning. Mm. So you're sort of trapped in this mm, uh, circle, mm-hmm. uh, tautology, technically. And, and so um, I, I've found myself less uh, French in that regard. <laughs> and I've, it's really in search of what that means. Mm knowing that meaning means something mm. intrinsic. And so uh, for me, music was a way uh, to find that and be gifted that mm. and, um, and recognizing you know, the anonymity of this world, this universe we live in. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that said, you throw down your marker and you tell your tale. And that's all I can do in terms of meaning, let alone taking care of my girls. Mm. I love that you bring up the concept of meaning. We'll dive a little bit deeper into that later. But something I sort of want to introduce before we kind of open up that portal of meaning in people's lives is something we've actually talked about off air before. Mm. And that's something I think we both kind of consider to be an essential ingredient in having a conversation like this. And Mm. that's the concept of humility. Oh, yeah. And, you know, humility (laughs) and not knowing something and not having answers. But by posing specific questions, we can examine our human conditioning and perhaps identify where there is room for expansion, room for us to be involved. And with humility in mind, how might you explain the concept of authenticity? Oh, there's there's a three-legged stool. Yeah, I got you with that one. (laughs) Well, I, I'm careful with that because uh, the way that term is used is often a bludgeon. Mm. I'm authentic, you're not. And, and that's the higher consciousness mm. routine mm-hmm. where people run that by you, whether you're a Marxist, therefore you're guilty of, what do they call it? Uh, Marx had a term for it. Um, I'll think of it. But at any rate, <laughs> it was used that his consciousness was higher than yours, and I just didn't understand the brilliance of his view. Mm. Um, and authenticity, particularly, you know, again, I date myself because we, I went through the 60s mm-hmm. and understand how it was used, the notion of we're going to strip away the falseness of our culture and liberate ourselves uh, with a capital L, mm. and then hence a number of liberation theology, liberation uh, movements grew out of the notion that we're stripping ourselves uh, 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 of the burden of what was holding us down. Mm-hmm. The two-headed coin there, <clears throat> of course, is that to think that you can live without culture, as if you can live without some handrails, uh, I think sort of ended at Altamont uh, with the Rolling Stones mm-hmm. and or Manson. In other words, you, you end up trying to figure out what you're, what is gonna, you're going to hold on to culturally. Right. It's, not, it's not liberation from things. It's liberation for things. And that got lost, again, hasn't gone through the 60s and 70s, where you you really, what eventually happens is nihilism. Mm. So trying to find back to the word meaning Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh, that underlies, and so it's a search for meaning, not from things, Mm. if that makes any sense. Well, it does to me. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Good, good. I had you pegged at four. I mean, well, there was a couple of things in that question that I sort of wanted to just bring into the conversation. One of them is that with humility in mind and having a conversation, 
about things like this, what I'm sort of getting at is no one is really right and no one is really wrong. So let's just talk about it. Would you say that there's truth in that statement or where? what's the argument with, oh, well, with that? Well, okay then. I would say we're using language, you're using language like that as presumes certain things. And of right. course, being a recovering philosophy major, <laughs> I realize those are loaded terms mm -hmm. because really the notion that, uh, for example, uh, Alice in Wonderland, mm. you know, when you fall down the hole and then so it, that word means what I mean it when I want it to mean that. And you get into that sort of spiral. Mm -hmm. So back to being authentic uh, I think that's what you're asking. Is that right? Um, I think uh, there's a notion uh, that it's my truth and and there are only these little um, Leibniz had a, 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 a book on what he called monad monadology, mm. which was basically that um, that we are all in our little, monads, this little silos, and that's the ultimate truth that we are locked forever in these monads mm. trying to share our truth out, but, but knowing that it can never be, in his view, mm -hmm. transmitted or understood because we're just locked in these you know, like in those slasher films when the guy's going up, the slasher's going up the <laughs> stairs and you see his eyes. Look, <laughs> Yes, exactly. Exactly. That is monadology. So I think, I think I'm careful about saying that we are all floating monads uh, with our own separate truths that are inescapably our, mm, our own and only our own because uh, then you run into the same tautology as meaning. Mm. Do you mean that? Mm. And if all truths are equal, I, I would I would beg to differ. I don't think that's necessarily true. There are, and the question is, are there universals? And this leads into, are there, uh, is there a moral dimension to any of this? And if not, Nietzsche had it right. Then God is dead, and have you know. Katie bar the door, mm. and that is that is a problem, and and I would say it's worth considering, not only intellectually but emotionally. Mm. Does that make any sense? I believe it does. I'm going to help kind of track for our listeners. <laughs> okay, sorry. Because sorry, listeners. Don't be sorry. <laughs> and also, just know I'm gonna. This is on record, but okay, so some can... of the things might be taken out oh, just gosh, to, yeah. to piece together. Yeah, yeah, sure. So basically, what I'm trying to get at by asking mm -hmm. about mm -hmm. humility in our conversation. Oh, okay, sure. Because I think we've bridged authenticity, uh -huh. and I'm gonna add this in a second. But sure. when we were talking, when I first came over we sort of narrowed down on humility. Oh, let me, I'd love to talk about it. So, so I'm going to guide us into that yeah, next, just yeah. basically to kind of mm -hmm. let people know that the reason why we're bringing up humility is because even though we're having a very like scholarly conversation yes, about these things, right. we want I people to understand. Yes. That, we haven't read Kant or whatever. Got it. Right. I totally get it. Sure. Sure. So I'm going to cue us back in. Thank you. Thank you. That was, I fully complete. Like, I'm like, <laughs> that was gold. So I'm going to come back in and say, so Nietzsche actually says no price is too high for, mm -hmm. you know, the privilege of owning yourself. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Kierkegaard says that individual authenticity requires the individual to step outside of the norms of his community to mm -hmm. decide for himself how he should act mm -hmm. or she. Mm -hmm. And Brene Brown adds that to mm -hmm. be authentic, we must cultivate this courage to be imperfect and vulnerable. So I'm bringing in a couple different ideas of authenticity. Mm -hmm. And what I love about each of these things is that, and I'm going to tie this back together, that there's humility mm. that's sort of asked of us in each of these pathways to authenticity. Uh, I That's a wonderful uh, setup for my perception. Mm -hmm. I was asked to be a teaching assistant for the philosophy department and actually two, two, two classes. Oh, wow. So I went to a bunch of teaching, you know, all the professors would show up and I'd be a fly on the wall. Uh, 
often I did not see humility, mm. which is why I didn't become a philosophy major, because I realized in my experience, except for Jack, Jack, you know, he hit the beaches at, Jack Paget, my mentor, hit the beaches at Omaha, or no, excuse me, at uh, Iwo Jima, which brings you in touch with what's real and what's not. So in any event, um, I didn't sense humility in which you could distinguish between this is my perception, that doesn't mean yours is wrong or, you know, fundamentally, it just means um, there's all all sorts of things we just don't know and we're honest. And I'll, I'll give you a quick example. When I was uh, going through a rough patch and I was living in uh, Okemos, no, excuse me, in Hazlitt, Michigan. Mm. So, you know, walking the streets with a trench coat on, hands in pockets with a <laughs> cigarette kid, walking around. So I'd go to this bar in, uh, what's it called? Anyway, and I'd have a beer and watch sports. So this guy sidled up to me. Out of the blue, I'm just watching the ball game and, and starts talking to me and makes long story short he was a philosophy professor at, uh, in ethics in wow. uh, at Michigan State and so every time I'd go into this bar and I just wanted to be left alone he'd sit down and start talking to me and at that point I had studied technical philosophy but I didn't tip my hand because it didn't matter I was more interested in watching the Tigers play baseball <laughs> so anyway time goes on and all of a sudden, I become this guy every time he feels like he needs to talk to me about technical philosophy. And so one day, I finally said, well, I sort of read Hegel. I, you know, I've got problems with Hegel, and here they are, and so on. So time goes on. I go in again, uh, and he rushes to the bar door, um, and he comes up to me and goes, I have an ethical question to ask you. I go, well, great, you know, let her rip. <laughs> I'm watching the game. And he goes, well, you know, Dave, um, I, I, I am in love with my best friend's girlfriend, and I would like to have an affair with her. What do you think? Now, this guy teaches <laughs> ethics, to which, you know, at that time I'd been playing the bars long enough, and I realized, you know, how this may work out. And I mm -hmm. just, my very scholarly response was, well, you might not want to be a weasel. <laughs> so, you know, I guess being a scholar yeah. doesn't take you away from being the human condition. Mm -hmm. And often scholars are like weightlifters thinking that, you know, being strong and highly articulate, uh, sometimes it's a hindrance to actual humility and seeing that it's far more complicated than your erudite words, mm. this walk through this wilderness that we all walk. Wow. I love that you've noted sort of the limitation that language puts on the expression of the human condition. Hence times. music. That's why we do music. Well, I mean, I don't even have to ask. So when you were making music, mm. Would you say that you're driven by something internal? And if so, is that an example of you being your authentic self? Mm, that's a wonderful question. Um, to that, I, you know, I've been doing what I do for a long time uh, and had the good fortune to have written actually a, a piece for your, your dad uh, which was in the Olympics uh, when I was 19. Casual. Well, and I just, we were talking about love, and it's a long story there. And then he left to go back to Michigan State, and I went down in the middle of the night and wrote this piece called Golden Street. Mm -hmm. And I stuck it in a sock drawer until the opportunity came for it to, I mean, all of a sudden after one shiny moment, I instantaneously had talent, <laughs> uh, according to CBS. Right. <laughs> So then that got used for a number of things, and it only showed that, to me, it was a confirmation of, well, I wrote this thing, it's staying with me, and, and it'll find its time. Mm -hmm. And it was not time in terms of 
producing it for the world. So I couldn't afford to produce it until I was 30. So um, back to your question, it was um, how that works for me is it, I, I was gifted this this piece of music. I knew it was like when you write something that, or at least when I write something that has staying power, it's like a, your heart has a little like filament, like in a light bulb, and there it goes, it's wiggling away, and it stays, and it gets up in the air and stays up in the air. And that is the real, for me, test. Mm. My wife calls it Dave's inner workshop that he has occasional access to, and when that happens, it's a good day in the neighborhood. Mm. Uh, the world's full of details that need attention, uh, but I clear the decks when that happens. Mm. And I would say that's authentic, back to your term, to me. That's where I'm really painting. Mm. Um, uh, instead of painting myself into a corner, I'm actually painting myself out of a corner. That's just what music is for me. So would you maybe go as far to say that in creating music, mm -hmm. in harnessing those ideas, mm -hmm. are you creating meaning? meaning? Absolutely, yeah. sure. Absolutely. Is that meaning that resonates solely to your experience that just so happens to speak to a collective? Or do you feel like you're sort of drawing on this collective experience? Well, I'm more... Buddhist in that regard. Mm. Someone asked uh, the Buddha uh, something about the afterlife. Mm -hmm. And he answered, that question does not lead to edification. So I, my philosophy professors would always be driving, and I'll go, I have no idea. I'm not going to overthink this. Mm. It comes. I'm grateful. And I move on because I don't think that leads that you can't answer that in my opinion. So mm -hmm. you either accept it and do more of it on a good day. Uh, but to try to put an intellectual framework on something that has wings is pointless to me. Mm. That kind of leads me into this notion again of something we've talked about off air. And that's sort of this concept of judgment accountability mm -hmm. And, you know, once we have to judge something, we're accountable for that. Can you talk a little bit more about what that means? Well, I'll, I'll get slightly technical and then I'll move away from it as quick. Perfect. I'll sprint away from it. <laughs> and that is we, we are, we have to judge in order to get through this world. Right. You know, the certain parts of town when I lived in L.A., I wouldn't go. It was a judgment. Mm -hmm. People walking by you, you, you. Judgments happen. That's the human condition. Sure. So, um, back to your, you know, ask me one more time exactly how I can tease out an answer to your question. So, what we sort of talked about off air again is this notion that we're driven by an internal compass. There's mm -hmm. sort of a moral, maybe an ethic, more, maybe a value compass mm -hmm. that guides our decisions and choices. Yeah. And there's this freedom, like you said, there's these wings to things. But mm -hmm. the minute that we judge that, the minute mm -hmm. that we start to have an opinion on that, mm -hmm. we're then accountable for that opinion. We're accountable oh, for that Oh, sure. Judgment. Okay, yeah. I mean, accountable to who and accountable for what is the question. Mm -hmm. And I would also answer that um, the, the act of songwriting, for example, or composing, you hear something and it there's the same amount of notes for me as there are for you. Mm -hmm. The way I hear things is a prism, inner prism, how the light goes through, and then I think, oh, that's it. Mm. Now that that that's it moment is is the difference between how I would write music than you would or or your dad would or whomever. Uh, it makes sense in its own peculiar way. For example, I'm a big fan of Eric Satie, mm. who wrote a series of pieces called Gymnopathy, uh, and he has a series of them, and they're oddball pieces of French music that he wrote in the 19th century, 
and, and into this century. I take that back, into the, uh, the 20th century, excuse me. <laughs> and, and he was drummed out of music school. And the pieces that now hang around were the ones he wrote when he didn't know what he was doing. And he got drummed out because they were oddities. And now what he was doing is experimenting with music and harmony that were off the beaten track at the mm -hmm. time. And, for example, Copland, who is the master, one of the masters, American masters, um, when he came up with his form of harmony, it was odd compared to what was being done. Now we... We presume he painted the harmonic skies for America, mm. and we now you I hear his harmony all over the place. Mm -hmm. So he heard things a certain way, and had the brilliance in his case to uh, introduce it and stay with it. And now we we hear Appalachian Spring and all those in every I, I hear it all over the place. Mm. So. I, I would say mm, I try not to overanalyze, uh, even though it doesn't sound like it right here. <laughs> <laughs> Just the right amount, I'd yes, say. Yes, exactly. Gosh. And that is a judgment. I, I, I'll leave you with one other thought on this. Please. Um, I'm a big fan of uh, Oscar Hammerstein, who wrote with Rodgers and Hammerstein. Sure. And some snarky reporter said, you know, Mr. Hammerstein... Uh, people say, which is reporter talk for I think, mm -hmm. that your music is overly sentimental. Mm. Mm. And he, being erudite, said, well, so, yeah, well son, I, I am sentimental. And people are sentimental about the things they love. Mm. So I write about sentimental and about what people love. Mm. Isn't that smart? Guys, I too am a sentimentalist, and as somebody who strives to provide services from a soul-centered place, I had to be sure that my brand and my business were in loving alignment. I needed help organizing my ideas and designing a brand and a website that felt like, well, me. So I enlisted the amazing services of Shea Spaniola Creative. Shay helps shape the vision of my business with consistent brand messaging and comprehensive web strategy. Whether building a website that shares your services or creating a social presence that serves as an extension of your brand, Shay Spaniola Creative can do it all. So, whether you've checked out my social media, my website, or even my podcast cover photo, that is the brainchild of my collaboration with Shay. And as a special treat for our listeners, she's offering 10% off when you use the code CREATIVE10 for all services and offerings. Visit her site, shayspaniolacreative.com for more. That's Shay, S-H-Y, Spaniola, S-P-A-N-I-O-L-A, creative.com. Yeah, and I mean, you're talking to a reformed musical theater kid, so I get that <laughs> okay, very good, deeply. Good, good. And I love that. It really ties in with this last little bit I want to talk about. Yeah. And you speak about the moment where that's it, that that's moment it. of alignment mm -hmm. and how it feels. Oh, yeah. Can you tell me a little bit more Ooh. about how that feels? Yeah. And betray the Buddha. Well, uh, you know, I'm with us at all times. I'm just you know. I'm down with the Buddha too. I'm down with the Buddha. Uh, I would say, yeah, I, it it is a different type of moment. Uh, not to quote one shining moment, but mm -hmm. when things line up, uh, and you have your antennas up, mm -hmm. which, like it or not, mine are always up. Um. All of a sudden, you catch something, and you think, "There it is," mm. and 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 sorry, I lead you to Heidegger, uh, <laughs> who talks about art becomes art when you know it's art, and it tells you it's art. Sure. I mean, it's not; it's just it's a two-way street. Sure. And so, it's certainly true with the work that I'm most proud of. Mm is you get that information and there is a reciprocity between you and this moment filled with this music in some way. And not to, again, back to humility, I'm not trying to, you know, make this Beethoven here. It's just my way of going, I know 
I'm going to drop everything I'm doing right now because something is happening. I'll leave it at something. And something is um, said with all humility, and, it, and it's non-technical. Something is happening. Mm. And then my day is following where that leads me. I'm almost a little nervous to touch on that because I feel like there's such a internal resonance when you say something is happening. And I feel and I hope for anyone who's listening that you know and you can recognize when something is happening. Mm -hmm. It's this precarious mm -hmm. experience yeah. that yeah. we all as human beings have. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I will dare to ask in such limiting language... <laughs> Would you say that this moment, this something, is akin to fulfillment? Well, I, I'll double back. Fulfillment, it certainly, uh, it's certainly rewarding in the sense that you're, you're both active and passive at the same time, mm -hmm. like falling in love. You let go of certain things in order to let other things happen. Mm. So mm. Um, I think you said a word in which I probably need to talk about, which leads to what you're saying fulfilling, is permission to do these things. Mm. And that is the hard part of the whole thing. Because if you're so inclined like I am, you feel like I'm out of my mind, what am, you know, and getting permission, in my case, music. Uh, I mean, at, at college, I wrote music, but I was a philosophy major, so I was not near and dear to the music department, and, mm. and so they had no idea what I was doing, and I, it gets very solitary. I knew what I was doing but it's hard to express because it, you know the world's whizzing by you and you're going in slow motion and noticing certain things that are not economically intelligent. Mm. <laughs> mm -hmm. How's that? Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and then you really are, uh, hopefully not to cut off your, your ear like Van Gogh, I mean, you're, you're in your own, your own way, but getting permission to do that at a certain point, you throw down, this is what I do. This is who I am, mm. and I'm going to do this. Um, it, but that's hard, and that's, def that's separate. Because there are a lot of artists who get give themselves permission and, and really are confusing that without doing the hard work. Yeah. We make it so Dionysian, the, this conversation. But, you know, I spent years on the road six nights a week, five sets a night. Mm. I mean, I got good at what I do because I, I did the work. Right. And, and that gets lost somehow in the, in the sort of rhapsodic language. Well, well, I can sit down at the piano and play it mm. in a way. I'm not great, but I'm good at what I do on the piano. Sure. And so, mm. um, so it is both, you've you got to get permission which to... Do this work, but if you don't do the work, then you know you're hate Ashbury cool. You know what I mean? I great, and I'm not being um, critical. It's just ob observing. You got to do the work. The Beatles did the work. In fact, I just saw a thing on Sting who said the Beatles gave me permission mm. to do this. I heard that music and I thought these guys are from Liverpool, very near where I live. I'm going to do this. That's permission. This leads us to something in life that it seems like we're all kind of after. I mean, why do anything in life to feel bad? Yeah. I mean, I think I would distinguish from, look, if you choose the artist's life, mm -hmm. you're going to have uh, – oversensitized about certain issues. My wife would call it obsessive, mm -hmm. um, and rightly so. And so you're going to get dinged up, and that's hard. And sometimes you're carrying around a lot of ashes, mm. and that's certainly true. I have a catalog full of that, too. Mm. But that was my way of writing about what was happening, very difficult things, as well as joy, as well as 
humor, as children, so you know, just write where, what you're doing. So I, I would say, you know, granting yourself permission to be, to do what matters to you and find meaning in, I think that's what you're asking. And I would say, like it or not, you'll do it or you won't. Hopefully you will. Mm-hmm. Um, and that means you'll probably be slightly out of step by the other tantalizing um, things that distract from that. Mm-hmm. You know, if I would say, you know, I'm more interested in my music than I am me. I'm more interested in these creations. If I could get out of this, I don't really care. It, you know, fortunately, I've written enough that people like these creations, mm-hmm. but it, it you know, I'm not really interested in shaking hands and kissing babies. I'm interested in making more of this because that's my road. And would you say that that road gives you pleasure? Well, I, you know, when we on our off-camera <laughs> conversations, off mic, I think, uh, th- yes, absolutely. I, I would not use that word because right. the word in our culture means something more carnal necessarily and so being hypersensitive about language certain i guess i get pleasure out of creating things that makes that i feel are 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 worthy Mm. um but i would say to me it's just a quiet ringing of the bell uh and that i'm doing my job Mm. um pleasure is you know multi multi multi-faceted Mm -hmm. Uh, I, I get all sorts of pleasure from all sorts of things. Sure. I wake up in the morning, look out the sky, and go, "Whoa, look at that!" Mm. <laughs> you know, uh, that I would I call that pleasure. It's more of an acknowledgement of I'm standing right here, right now. Mm. Uh, pleasure also means when Michigan beats Ohio State in football once a year, I'm happy. It's dopamine to me. Mm. <laughs> But that, there's so many gradations of that word, so I'm careful with its use, knowing that I get great pleasure holding my grandson who looks up at me like, you know, he just won the lottery. Mm. That also is pleasurable, but it also rings a little deeper than the newest Kardashian show. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's so interesting that you bring up, you know, modern cultural touch points. Mm-hmm. Because I think that a lot of those things have contributed to what I think Shedonism is for me mm-hmm. and what I hope to, and as far as say challenge mm-hmm. in our recognition of what pleasure has been, mm-hmm. is that pleasure, speaking from a philosophical standpoint, mm-hmm. and hedonism mm-hmm. comes from this carnal philosophy that self-satisfaction should be pursued above all else. Mm-hmm. It is the yep. number one mm-hmm. thing that as a human you should have. Right. And when I really, if you tune into episode one where I talk about hedonism and how the birth of hedonism came to me, mm-hmm. you hear me talk a little bit about the notion that pleasure, this sense of, oh, that feels good, mm-hmm. that that to me is sort of this innate experience. Mm-hmm. Like I said, we don't necessarily as humans, and I won't speak for everybody here, and mm-hmm. we have to acknowledge that. Sure. I don't speak for everybody when I say that That's most humility. People, Oh, thank God I have it right now. <laughs> Guys, I'm trying to keep myself accountable. I'm trying, I'm trying. I can't judge this. You see how this is all related? <laughs> but what I mean by that is most of us don't do things with the intention of feeling bad, quote unquote. And I know that that's dichotomous language, but mm-hmm. we want to feel expansive. We want to feel open, available. We want to have that tingly sense that we're in alignment, that something out there or something within us is connected. There's this sense of what good feels like in all of us. Mm-hmm. And what I'm hoping with Shedonism is to sort of reprogram this notion that pleasure isn't just the carnal sex, drugs, and rock and roll. That pleasure is that moment when you look at the sky. Pleasure is looking in the mirror and seeing the person behind those eyes. Pleasure is creating a song. And so I ask you, after centuries of perceived damnation, that pleasure is, above all things, indulgent, frivolous, primarily carnal. How can we reframe pleasure to highlight it as a resource in our lives today? 
I would say, uh, you know, the word pleasure is burdened by a, a cultural baggage, finding meaning. Now that gets serious. Mm. But I think, like, like it or not, we're stuck with it. And, um, and that may mean sacrifice, uh, to in order to I certainly sacrificed in order to find my way into the clearing, mm. and so there's there's both of them, Dionysus, and Apollo oh. are are you know there's how that moves around between the two. Mm. I think what you're saying is you know my in plain English is that you don't have to feel so doggone bad just because. All these things are set up to make you feel so doggone bad. Uh, I think you have permission to find what is true to you, and you have permission to tell the truth as you see it, not saying you have to impose it on everybody. Uh, and that's all we do, like it or not. So if that makes any horse sense, there it is. I think it makes total horse sense. And as you might have heard, we just got confirmation that that is exactly what I was, uh, I guess, hoping to hear. You know, I, in valuing and respecting all viewpoints that come into this portal, this primarily is a portal of permission. And I like to use the word pleasure because as a reformed hedonist, not quite understanding why this label was put upon me or why I always resonated with it, I believe that that reclamation of pleasure relates exactly to what you're saying, that reclamation of pleasure is to me akin to permission of authenticity. Well, I have a story for you. Ooh. You ready? Yep. So I was at your, your mom and dad's, and you were there. And I had written a song... 20 years, 30 years before, which I always thought was a really good song, but I write hundreds of songs. So I, you started singing one of my songs called Seashells. Oh, my gosh. And you knew the lyrics, and I thought, I know that song. Oh, I wrote that song. Oh and in hearing you sing it, you gave me permission to go, let me see if I can play that song again and remember that song. Turns out it was an awful good song. And now I have every intention to play it again, thanks to you sitting next to me going, I was picking seashells, one reminded me of you. <clears throat> With your eyes of oyster silver against a sea of turquoise blue, and I threw it in the ocean just to see what it would do. It sank right to the bottom, just like me and you. <laughs> so if you were here and you could see my eyes filling up with tears over here. Oh, um, so... Dad and I would listen to that song on repeat. Yeah, yeah. Any time we were in a car. I played that. I used to go down to Nashville trying to write those songs. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't really good at it. Um, um, and so I played them seashells. And, and they, it was like, what is this? This <laughs> is not what we do. And it was disheartening to me at the time, right. thinking... I think this is clever, more than clever. It was, it's a great little, it's a wonderful way to talk about things with a lot of not, not self-seriousness. Anyway, uh, and then as I got older and, and had more success with these other things that I do as well, songwriting, mm -hmm. um, I now, I discovered a number of songs that were uh, I believe in, and I have reclaimed seashells, uh, thinking, no, that's what I meant, and it's really good, and if you hear it, that's enough. Um, and I gave myself permission after getting out of the hall of mirrors that most people walk through, and it's hard as hell to go, well, I, I'm sorry you feel that way, but this is my painting, thank you. Mm. And that is hard, whether it's painting or living your life or saying, I want a family or I don't want a family or all those decisions. That's, you know, and that comes with its own baggage and my, my baggage from following this life. Um, but uh, I've rediscovered seashells thanks to you. Wow. Yeah. Good day in the neighborhood. Good day in the neighborhood. I'm going to start to wrap us up, and Good. I just want to uh, – 
talk a little bit about you're quoted on your website saying that one shining moment was one of the first in the batch of songs where I just quit worrying about the value of my writing. Yeah. I suppose one might draw some conclusions from this, and I'm curious if what you were oh, talking absolutely. about. Oh, absolutely! No, 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 no. Uh, yeah, yeah. I was in uh, a producer's office. Uh, I'd written a song called "When I See Her Children." It's a weeper, and uh, and it goes, "When I see her children, it makes me wonder why." They look just like their mother and like that other guy. And when I see her laughing, I think of how, or I, when I see them laughing, I think of how she'd smile. Mm. And I've loved her all these years, and that's a long, long while. Mm. Okay. So I thought it was pretty clear what I was saying. Sure. Producer says, What were the names of the children? I need to know the names of the children. So I thought, I must leave now. <laughs> and that was really, but this gets to your point. It was liberating, even though it was hard to hear. Sure. I thought, I'm in the wrong town. It's not his fault. I, I just don't do this. Mm. And that was, at that time, discouraging, but then empowering. I hate to use the word because it's a cliche, but I was liberated by, oh, I'm just, I'm not going to do this anymore. Mm. I'm going to write what I, seashells. I'm going to write when I see your children. I'm going to write these songs that uh, don't, aren't going to be on radio. And, not, and in fairness to him, he's thinking about radio, money, getting paid, not getting fired, all that. W I was not going to do that anymore. And um, yeah, so then I go home, my car breaks down by the side of I-96. And, uh, and so I'm smoking in this car. And I, I actually, it's true, I took out what pocket change I had, like 71 cents, and threw it onto 96 and said, take it all. And walked home and wrote One Shining Moment three weeks later. Wow. Yeah. So I was done. Whoo. That's the truth. <laughs> I mean, I'm sitting here with my mouth agape because if you know what One Shining Moment is, and if you don't, take this moment and go look up One Shining Moment by David Barrett. I mean, it's a song... It's lightning in a bottle to so many people. I mean, it's yeah. it's used to really capture that moment, specifically used right now in sports, but mm -hmm. it's yeah. used to capture this moment yeah. of, and I hate to mirror your word, but empowerment, of permission, mm -hmm. of yeah. love. I mean, it's yeah. the embodiment of something. Imagine me by the side of the road throwing 71 cents out there. I can. And you know what? It's... <laughs> From that moment to one shining moment, yeah, a song that one might say brings a great deal of pleasure to so I would many. Say, and I, I, on that, I was. We were last year at the Final Four at the championship game, and it's nothing better than having a whole stadium. After the game, they play one shining moment to the kids, and the whole stadium is singing a song that you know I wrote in a five hundred dollar apartment on a broken down piano. To go, huh? What do you know? You know, what do you know? Wow. Seventy-one cents on I ninety-six. Yeah. Well, Uncle Dave, we're gonna wrap <laughs> up here right now. Good. I'm just so full of light and inspiration after our conversation, and I just have a couple brief rapid-fire questions sure. for us. Sure. What are you a yes for? What am I a yes for? Oh, my children. Mm. Period. My grandson. Period. My wife on a good day. Uh, uh, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> uh, when she hasn't changed the locks in the door, sure. I'm all set. Mm -hmm. No, no, those are easy yeses. Uh, my friends, mm -hmm. people I love, and I got, I'm lucky, like your dad, like you, the Henning family. Mm -hmm. It's all yes. It's just, okay, yes. What do you need? Yes. I start with yes on, the, on those things. Mm -hmm. And certainly trying to seek what's divine. That's a yes. What brings you pleasure? Oh... I had heart surgery a couple of years ago. So every day I my eyes flap open and flutter and I think, okay, here we are. Here we go. Mm. And that it's uh, you were quoting a statement of mine, it's not the glass half full, half empty, it's that there's a glass. Mm. So that gives me pleasure. And what does being human mean to you? Oh boy. The simple one I leave for oh, this. Oh no, obviously. gosh, that well, there, there's a mouthful. Yeah. And I would say, 
being human, um, I, 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 I also dig deep into the Christian, uh, Judeo-Christian doxology, mm-hmm. and realizing I, I know what I know, but not much more than that, and being open uh, to that, being open-minded without being empty-headed, and recognizing that I'm, I have my flaws and the things I wish I had done differently. Uh, but I'm a world-weary optimist, so after you get kicked in the shins a number of times or have a smoking car by the side of the road, that's part of the, that's part of the deal, too. Um, and do my best with the time I have left. Mm. Well, thank you, Uncle Dave, for peeling back these layers and diving deep. <laughs> I gave you more than you bargained oh, for. Oh, no, so for sorry. all those years I wanted to sit on rocks and talk about life. This feels like the manifestation <laughs> oh, of that dream. Good, but good. you can find David Barrett at davidbarrett.com and be sure to look out for his tunes on TV as well as looking up One Shining Moment. If you haven't heard the song, It's a true gift for the soul. Thanks again, Uncle Dave. It has been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure to be here. Now let's grok it. In this episode, I really wanted to lay down some groundwork, not just about what we're talking about, but how we're talking about it. Dave, primarily being a musician, talks about infusing meaning into his music and how that brings his life pleasure, permission, and how he's both engaging his authenticity but leaving it at the door in the same breath, the humility that we talked about. I wanted to include this episode in this season mostly because some of the terms that we're throwing around we touch on in other episodes but I really wanted to provide some framework about why it's important that I'm using these words and how I'm thinking about these words. And I think that Dave really sheds a lot of light into how we can conceive and perceive these concepts and these words so that as we're using them in our language, we have some moral compass behind how we're using them and why it's important. Basically, we're talking about adding meaning into life and the permission to add meaning while maintaining humility because no one really knows any better and we're all doing our best. That's a pretty brief grocket, but kind of straight to the point. So, do you grok it? Hey, pleasure seekers. I hope you guys vibed out to this episode. If you feel called to, please download, subscribe, leave a review, or share with a loved one. The ripple effect of these actions not only support me, but support others in discovering the permission that awaits them. Think of it as an act of love. If you're looking to connect with me personally or are interested in my coaching services and events, you can find me online at IamJuliaHenning.com or on Instagram at IamJuliaHenning. Tag me in the hashtag permission portal on your social media when you're listening and let's vibe. Ready for the next permission portal? Look out for new episodes every Wednesday. And thank you all for tuning in and tuning inward. As always, it has been my pleasure. <laughs>